In 2019, J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series, got canceled. Canceled for tweeting out her thought that a woman shouldn't be fired from her job because she held to the truth that biological sex was an objective reality. I don't know that the cancellation or erasure of Rawling from public space quite took hold, in large part due to her tremendous wealth. Nevertheless, the phenomenon of cancel culture is troubling. If you're not familiar, cancel culture is the mass shaming of individuals who articulate ideas which are deemed inappropriate or offensive to current social preferences. Oftentimes, the shamed or canceled individual, regardless of their convictions or of the morality of their actions, make very public, very dramatic apologies. But they never find Forgiveness. Absolution is absent. And I bring this up because I think, unfortunately, rather than, than serving as a counterculture, the church often takes its cues from popular culture. I think it's likely the case that many Christians have adopted cancel culture as part of their homes and indeed as part of our churches. Someone has a different opinion on masks than you? Canceled. Someone voted for a different political candidate? Canceled. Someone offended you? Canceled. You have to cut these toxic people out of your life after all. It's, it's what's best for your mental health. No Kindness, no compassion, no tender-heartedness, no forgiveness. And it's precisely this cancel everyone who disagrees with you, offends you, or sins against you kind of attitude that Paul is legislating against here at the end of Ephesians chapter 4. He wants to make plain that Christians are those who are kind and compassionate like the Lord Jesus, who forgive like God the Father forgives. And so you can see that our exhortation this morning, kind of the, the centerpiece of our sermon, is going to be uh, the exhortation to, to grow up in Christ, which, which fits with the context. We're going to get there in a second. But to grow up in Christ, giving no opportunity to the devil, that is to divide the church, to divide us one against another, to be kind and to be forgiving. And so let's set the stage. Ephesians, remember, is divided into two halves. The first half is about doctrine. The second half is about devotion. Chapters 1 through 3 tell us about how God has chosen his people, made us alive together in Christ, and adopted us into his one family. He takes Jews and Greeks, slave and free, black, white, Cuban, Asian, all of these things and in between and makes us one in Christ because of our singular identity in him. This is, this is the doctrine. And then the chapters 4 through 6 are about devotion. 
It's about how we live in light of those truths. And so God has adopted us into his family. That's the doctrine. And now we are learning what it means to live up to the family name. That's devotion. We who are in Christ, who have repented of our sins and put our faith in his substitutionary death and his justifying resurrection, have been adopted into his family. And now we live up to the family name. We've been born again, and so we're learning how to walk. And it's this theme of of walk, we see it throughout Ephesians, but it's really prevalent here in chapter 4. In the front end, we see in verse 1, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we have received, the calling to which we have been called. We say, well, what does that mean? And we've talked about it. It fills out in, in growing up in Christ, maturing in Christ, being committed to sound doctrine and, and love, growing in our unity and our care for one another. We also see that we are told not to walk as the Gentiles do. I could paraphrase it for you. Don't walk like the world walks. Don't live like you used to live. Don't walk according to a darkened understanding, alienated from the life of God, following trails that have been blazed by those who are walking in spiritual blindness. No, walk worthy. Walk, you'll see eventually, here in chapter 5, verse 2, we're going to walk in love. And in between there, verses 17 through 32, kind of the the center of where we're, we're going to spend our time today, Paul gives us an illustration to talk about what it means to walk worthy or to walk in love, to, to walk in the way of Christ. And the illustration is this. He says, put off the old man and put on the new man by the renewing of your mind. The Holy Spirit, renew your mind and, and live differently. And so we've said it's kind of like uh, taking off your 2020 sweatpants, and, and putting on, on your church clothes, right? Assuming that sweatpants are not your church clothes. I mean, maybe they are. That's cool. Uh, a few weeks ago, I wore, wore Crocs and gym shorts. It's, it's all right. Welcome. The, the, point, the point of the illustration here is to say this is a new way of life. We're, we're putting on new clothes. We're going to follow Christ. And we've summarized that by saying we want to be a people who are off with the old, and on with the new. Off with the old self, the old man. On with the new self, the new man. And Paul has given us practical instructions about how this plays out in the church. And we've looked at those against the backdrop of the reality that those who are in Christ and in the family of God have an adversary who seeks to devour us and to divide us one against another. You see that in verse 27. It says, give no opportunity to the devil. And so we're to give no place to Satan. No place in our pews or in our congregation. And so a lot of these positive commands we've we've just kind of looked at from the perspective of these are areas where the evil one tries to get his claws into our lives so that he might rip us apart from one another and away from Christ. And so we say we don't, look at your big outline on your insert, right? Uh, We see that Satan tries to destroy our unity in Christ by, by the way that we speak to one another, by the way that we express our anger, by drawing us toward old habits. Last week we talked about repentance. And then this week we're talking about grudge-bearing, by, by tempting us towards bitterness and unforgiveness. And so you can see today's outline, we're just going to talk about, well, what is forgiveness? Why is it hard? And, and how can we do it? And so, in summary, main idea is this, off with the old, on with the new, grow up 
be kind and forgiving to one another. Let's pray and we will begin working through the text together. Father, we thank you for your marvelous grace. Apart from it, not one of us has any hope of life. Every one of us deserves eternal damnation and death under your wrath. You are infinitely good, infinitely holy, and therefore the penalty for sinning against you is infinite. And yet, God, you in your mercy, because of the great love with which you have loved us, have drawn us to yourself, given us new hearts when we heard the gospel and believed, repented of our sins. We thank you, Lord, for causing our chains to fall off, allowing us to be free from sin and death, freeing us to love and worship you. Thank you for adopting us, God. Pray that you would speak now and that we, your people, would listen to your word and submit ourselves to it. God, we love to come before you and worship by listening to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as the world does, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, because we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God.
The fragrant offering piece at the end is just to say that Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable to God in Old Testament language. But as we come to this subject of being kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving, we, we recognize that we are being called kind of to the same thing again that we talked about last week. A inversion of our priorities. A change of our way of life. Remember we used last week when we were talking about the thief isn't going to steal anymore. They're going to work hard so they might have something to share with others. We said this would be the same as Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch, you know, taking up honest jobs as dentists and then giving away their money freely. This is the kind of change that Paul is calling us to. This is the kind of change that following Jesus elicits in his people. And now we're called to change from grudge-holding people. People who, who hold on to wrongs against us with white knuckles, vengeance in our hearts, jaws clenched, to being people who overlook offenses, who are compassionate and kind, forgiving. Instead of being grudge-bearing people, we're to be cross-bearing people. People who are committed to being kind and forgiving. But, but what does that mean to be forgiving? Well, what is forgiveness? I think forgiveness is one of those things we talk a lot about, but think about very little. And if you, if you look for definitions of forgiveness online, you will come across a lot of really good ones and some pretty bad ones. I think one definition in particular that has captured the imagination of, of a lot of Christians, unfortunately, is this idea that forgiveness is therapeutic, right? That, that forgiving someone is, is just about me and the way that I feel. And so it just requires me. It doesn't require a second party. So if if you, uh, if Dan calls me a name, a cotton-headed, what's it in, yeah, thank you. Yeah, he calls me that, and I'm like, man, this really hurts my feelings, uh, and I just get mad at him. I, I can say, you know what, I don't need to talk to Dan at all. I'm just going to, I'll forgive him. We don't have to reconcile, but he's forgiven, but I'm not ever going to talk to him again, right? There's no reconciliation taking place. This idea is that, that um, you, it says, you don't, have, you don't need someone else to forgive. It's very popular. But biblically speaking, forgiveness requires two parties. It requires the hard work of reconciliation. There's a lot of confusion around this. And, and I understand why. I think it's because many of us don't really have a category for overlooking an offense like Proverbs 19 talks about, right? Where when somebody does something against us, we're going, you know what? I'll, in love, I'm going to overlook that offense, and it's okay. We don't need to hash it out or be reconciled. I can overlook Dan name-calling me, and it's, it's good, and we're still going to have relationship. Or, or that category that says, this really did hurt me, but instead of being vengeful, I'm going I'm to let the other person know that this hurt me, and if they refuse to repent, I'm not going to get mad, but we're not reconciled, right? I, I'm going to love them and be kind to them, and I'm going to turn the matter over to the Lord. 
Remember in Romans 12, we're told to live at peace with everyone so far as it depends on us. And then we're given that exhortation, never avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's the point. We can, when someone doesn't repent of wrong against us, continue to love them and trust God's providence in dealing with that sin. We're not allowed to be bitter whether forgiveness has taken place or not. Whether we're overlooking an offense or being reconciled to someone else, bitterness is not part of the equation for the Christian. We are called to forgive, you see in verse 32 there, forgive one another, and so specific context here is is the church family, as God in Christ forgave you. And so this is where I'm getting this idea that forgiveness requires repentance. You with me? God doesn't forgive everyone. He forgives the repentant. And so forgiveness is predicated on repentance and reconciliation. It's two parties that were at odds with one another coming together and being reconciled. The offer of forgiveness for the Christian is unconditional, just like it is for God. Any who repent will be forgiven. The offer of forgiveness is unconditional. But forgiveness itself is conditioned upon repentance. And biblical forgiveness always includes reconciliation. And it's certainly much more than a feeling. If we adopt this therapeutic idea of forgiveness where I just forgive people, I don't reconcile with them, it's going to be very dependent on the way we feel. And that's not a great way to operate. I have a a good friend who really has struggled in the past with, with forgiving folks that did something heinous to a family member. And he says, I I want to forgive, but I just don't feel it. I think it's because of this adoption of this kind of wrong-headed idea. See, forgiveness is, right, in the words of Boston, more than a feeling. It's more than a feeling. It's a promise. Forgiveness isn't a feeling. It's a promise. It's a commitment to be reconciled. And if you you ever made a promise, you know that it can feel really good one moment and not so great the next. I loved uh, Alistair Begg talked about this uh, in terms of making a promise to run with someone in the morning, right? I, I could promise you, hey, tomorrow morning, uh, you and me, Jeremiah, we're going to go on a, a six-mile run. I'm not making this promise, by the way. Uh, but, but you know, you and me are going to go on a six-mile run together, and then I can wake up at 6 a.m. for our six-mile run and go, oh, I don't feel great about this. This was a terrible mistake. But I can also keep my promise. Very similar in marriage, right? There are days uh, that couples wake up next to one another, and you know what? We just not been jiving, and I just don't, you just don't feel married. But the reality is you've made a promise to one another. You're committed. See, forgiveness is a promise not to hold past wrongs against someone. It's a commitment to reconciliation. 
I really uh, enjoy Chris Braun's definition. And I've given it to you there on your insert. You can see it in italics at the bottom. This is, this is how he defines forgiveness. Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person. Although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. That's a really good definition. And we're, we're not going to parse all the details, but I want to bring your attention to, to a couple. One is that last clause, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. And so we can forgive, but that doesn't mean there won't be consequences. Forgiveness is always consistent with justice. Always consistent with justice. So for example, let's say that it comes out that uh, during church services or soon thereafter, like when everyone's singing, I have been sneaking out into the parking lot and rifling through people's cars and stealing you know, money and gadgets. Right? I've been doing it for years. Suckers. And so it comes out, you know, Marlene catches me, tells on me, and I come clean. I say, you guys, I was really wrong. Will, will you forgive me? Well, you're charitable people. I say, yes, we, we forgive you, but you're also just people. And so I would expect you would also say, and you're fired. Right? Forgiveness is always consistent with justice. There are consequences for sin. And so when we forgive one another, that doesn't mean that there aren't any consequences. There isn't any fallout. You with me? I just think that that's important to put out there. So the second part of the definition, the part that we want to focus on, is this, this part. He says, forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person. This means that we are resolving to pardon graciously. It says, when somebody sins against me and they repent and I say and, and I give them that promise of forgiveness, I'm saying, I'm not going to hold this wrong against you. I'm not going to hold a grudge against you. When someone comes to us in repentance, no matter how weakly, we don't cancel them. We forgive. We say we're not going to bring this sin up again before, before them, before other friends, before our own minds, or even before God. This is how God has forgiven us. And we are to forgive as he forgives. Forgiveness means not bringing up past wrongs against someone. In fact, I love how the Bible sometimes talks about God as forgetting our sins. A good example is Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. God speaking. 
I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It's not that God actually forgets, right? He's omniscient. He knows everything. He, he can't forget. But when the Bible uses this language, what it's putting us onto is the fact that God is not ever going to bring charges against us on the basis of our sin. He's not going to hold it against us. That image of, of Micah 7 is a wonderful one where he says, I'm going to take your sins and they, I'm going to cast them into the ocean, on the bottom of the ocean. This idea, I'm going to bury those sins six feet deep. I'm going to, I'm going to seal them away in a tomb with Christ and they're never getting out again because they've been paid for. And friends, I think we're called to forget in this sense, to resolve to never hold our sins, the sins of others, against them. Now let me ask you, I've been picking on married couples this morning, but, but if you're married, you've probably had this experience where you've forgiven your spouse for something, and then things go well for a while, and then you have a little tiff, and all of a sudden, the guns are out, and you have a few bullets in there. This is just like the time you ran out of gas, threw a shoe, it's just like the time you, you took my, my one rocks glass and filled it with some kind of mixture of stuff to capture fruit flies, and now I don't have my glass, and Janet drinks out of that glass sometimes. How could you do this? You bring up past wrongs. Friends, let me tell you, when you bring up a past wrong that you've allegedly forgiven, you have not given forgiveness. And the reality is you have been nursing bitterness. I want to be people who forget, who give forgiveness generously and keep our promise. For forgiveness, it's not refundable. You can't take it back. Sort of like... <laughs> If you've ever had very little money, perhaps you've had this experience, I have, uh, where you have a debit card and, and there's just a little bit of money in there and so you're like, I've got like, you know, 10 bucks and so you go and you make a couple purchases and you think you've got it sorted out and the reality is you've gone like negative five, 10 bucks, right? You're negative in your account and what the bank does, if you're familiar with this, is this thing called overdraft fees, right? So for every purchase you make on the negative side, even if it's like a pack of gum, they're going to charge you, uh, you know, like 30 bucks, 50 bucks, whatever their figure is, for every transaction thereafter. So let's say you're negative 5, 10, and you make two or three more purchases, and all of a sudden, what, what would have had you at like negative 30 bucks it has you at like negative $300, right? And so you... You, you call the bank and you say, look, I'm so sorry, I got mixed up, my math was wrong, I also was not aware of this terrible system where you charge me extra money when I spend more money. Like, can we figure this out? And let's say it's a really nice bank. And they say, you know what, clearly, clearly, sir, you, you are, you're sorry 
and this was just this was a mistake. We're gonna we're gonna go ahead. We'll for, we'll forgive the debt. We're not gonna charge you the the overcharge. See what they've done? They've they've canceled the debt. Things are good. But what they can't do is 20 years down the road come and find you and say, hey, you remember that $300 that we canceled for you? It's due with interest. No. Forgiveness is final if it's really forgiveness. Bitterness comes back and asks for its money with interest. We're to forgive as God forgives. We're to forgive and forget. Not that we don't have knowledge of a situation in the past, but that we're not going to hold that against someone else. Talk about that wrong with others. We're going to be reconciled with the one who has wronged us. Friends, let me ask you, are you guilty of rescinding forgiveness? Of trying to undo pardons that you've passed out? When it comes to the sins of others, are you more like an elephant? Never forget. Or more like a goldfish? Quick to forget and to forgive. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to forgiving others, we want to be the kind of people who forgive like God. Don't want to hold it against them. I'm going to have goldfish memories. Go out there. Be goldfish. If that helps you to remember how you are to forgive. It's, it's helpful. This forgiveness business seems easy enough, but you can see our second question there is, why is forgiveness hard? Because I, do, I think it's hard. It costs us. It's costly. I also think it's, I think it's hard because we're prideful. And because we're tempted towards living the way we used to live before knowing Jesus. Right, we, we took off the old clothes, we put on the new clothes, but we have that one threadbare shirt with holes all over it from college that we just love. We just want to get back in that thing. Probably should have thrown it out a long time ago, but it's there. We'll just, we'll just put it on for a day. But we like to go back to those things which used to define us. And so we find ourselves in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, that's shouting or screaming, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead of putting them away from ourselves, we in our pride like to take them to ourselves. You see, pride is the catalyst for unforgiveness. Pride is the catalyst for bitterness. It says, you have wronged me, and therefore, I want you to be wronged. I was hurt, so you need to be hurt. Really, what we're doing when we withhold forgiveness from other people is we are seeking vengeance ourselves. I know some of you are going, vengeance? (laughs) Me? No. What are you talking about? I think it's because most of us, when we think of vengeance, we think of like Mel Gibson in The Patriot, like with his axe hunting people down. And we're going, I'm, I'm not like that. 
That's probably true. I don't know many of you. That kind of vengeance. But I think what's more likely is you seek vengeance, I'll call it like paper cut vengeance. Have you ever gotten a paper cut? It's really small, really annoying, and it really hurts. So we might not be hunting people with axes, but we do go after one another with, with paper. Let me give you a couple examples. A husband is rude to his wife, and so she withholds affection. The pastor behaves irresponsibly, and so the congregation gossips. A parent disciplines a child, not because he's trying to teach, but because he's annoyed by the inconvenience the child has caused. A church member offends another, and so communication is is broken off with the satanic thought, well, God calls me to love them, not to like them. I wonder, friends, are there small ways in which you take revenge on others? Excuse me. Have you entrusted someone who isn't repentant to God's justice and resolved to love them and to be kind to them? Or have you decided to take vengeance yourself? Forgiveness is hard. And it is hard to follow Jesus. Carrying a cross is not supposed to be easy. Forgiven people are called to forgive people. It is hard, but we're called to do it. So we ask this question, how? How can we forgive? Well, look with me again at verse 32 and then the beginning of chapter 5. That sounded delightful in your ears. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. How are we to forgive? We are to give ourselves up for others. We are to be willing to be hurt and not to hurt back. We we are to pour our lives out for the good of others. We forgive by keeping our eyes on our crucified and risen Savior, in recognizing that he died on that cross for my sins. The justice of God was poured out on him so that I might have peace. I earned wrath and death. He took that so I could have peace and life. And so when I want to forgive someone, all I need to do is look at the cross. See the blood of Christ streaming down. And recognize, this is what God has done for me. Forgive as God has forgiven me generously, with love, freely. Oh, I can do that. I have received so much mercy and love and forgiveness from God that it's not that big of a deal for me to absorb the emotional cost of pardoning those who have sinned against me. Jesus gives us a wonderful example of this. This is how he teaches us to forgive in in Matthew 18. If you remember Matthew 18, this 
the story is kind of fronted by, there's a story of a shepherd going out and getting a lost sheep. There's 99 lost. There's, there's, I'm sorry, there's 99 that aren't lost. There's one that is lost. The good shepherd goes out and gets the one. It's a picture of God saving his people. And then we, we come to a section on what happens when God's people sin against one another, a section on church discipline. And Jesus says, if somebody refuses to repent, do X, Y, and Z, and if they refuse to repent after all these steps have been followed, you, you have to put them out of fellowship, all with the heart that one day they would repent and restoration, reconciliation would take place. And so this prompts a question from Peter. This is what he says in verse 21 of chapter 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70, 70 times seven, or 77 times. Now, in Jewish thought, forgiving someone three times was actually really good. <laughs> and so Peter, by saying seven, is being generous here. Thinks he is. It's definitely better than the three strikes you're out rule. I'll forgive him seven times, and then after that, he's out to lunch. And Jesus says, no, Peter, not seven times, but 70 times seven. If you do the math, you're like, 490, okay, got it. The idea here is not that we would keep a ledger and calculate how many times we're to forgive someone when they sin against us. The point of what Jesus is saying is, you are to forgive again and again and again and again and again as many times as they repent. He tells Peter this parable to press the point home. Verse 23 of Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. In contemporary money, it's about $6 billion, according to an ESV study note. So we're talking billions, big money here. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, I'll pay you, I'll pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, not that much money. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, I'll pay you. The servant refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and you should, not, should you not have mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you 
if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Did you catch verse 35? Because this is what Jesus is getting at when he's talking to Peter. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiven people forgive people. Jesus assumes that anyone who bears his name is going to be someone who is forgiving, who is kind and and tender-hearted, compassionate. Friends, that, that makes it very dangerous for some of us to pray the Lord's Prayer as we do every week. It's very dangerous for some of you to pray Matthew 6.12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you forgive others enough to be confident when you pray that? Of course, Christians are not perfect. We are not perfect forgivers. I don't mean to say that. We're not perfect. We're in progress. We're becoming in practice what we've been declared in Christ which is holy. But the overall tune and tenor of our lives should be that we are forgivers. We should be big forgivers. If ever you have trouble forgiving someone, remember where you were when Jesus found you. Dead. Drowned in sin debt condemned to an eternity under the wrath of God. And Jesus came, and he took that sin debt, and he paid it. It was nailed to the cross, forgiven for all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. Jesus paid it all so that you and I could be forgiven. He didn't just pay our debt so that we could have life forever with the God we were made for together with one another. He didn't just pay our debt. He credited to our account all of his righteousness. We didn't just go from, we didn't just go from being in the hole to being even. We went from being in the grave to being resurrected with Christ. You hear me? He, he gives to his people Every spiritual blessing. Let's go back to the start, to that doctrine. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, that's us who believe in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's doctrine. Forgiven, sin, buried, Raised to new life together with Christ. That's the doctrine. And now the devotion is we live like the Christ who has saved us. Like the Lord and Savior that we are united to. We go pouring ourselves out for one another. We go ready to forgive and to love. We have tender hearts. 
Oh, friends, we have received mercy. This is simple logic. We have received infinite mercy from God. And if that's true, we will be merciful to others. Those white knuckles will come open. We will be a people not marked by cancel culture, but cross-culture. Kindly overlooking offenses, tender-heartedly working towards forgiveness and reconciliation. Non-Christian, a word to you this morning, you can be forgiven. You just have to put your faith in Jesus. Turn from your sin and follow him. There's, there's nothing better. Church, we must resolve to be big forgivers. We, we need to have a culture here at Rockfish Valley Baptist Church that is marked by grace. Not by backbiting and bitterness and gossip and slander and shouting, but by tenderheartedness and kindness love. Uh, my, my prayer for us is that anybody that would come into this main hall or any of our other gatherings would go, these are gracious people. I mean, they're a mess. They're sinning against each other all the time, but they're so kind to one another, so quick to forgive. Brothers and sisters, let us forgive as God has forgiven us. Forgiveness isn't a feeling, it's a promise. Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from all moral liability and to be reconciled to that person. Forgiveness is to be like God. We want to, like father, like son. We want to be like the father who's adopted us. So be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the blessings that you've given us in Christ, who took the curse that was due to us so that we might live. We thank you for our future hope of resurrection. We thank you that we get to enjoy life together right now. We thank you that you have made us one we who have joined ourselves to you by repentance and faith. God, I ask that you would help each one of us here to be long-sighted rather than short-sighted. Help us to live each day enjoying every blessing that you give to us. Sun and sky, clouds and rain, birds and ants, honey, Help us to recognize your blessing in all that is around us. Let it be a foretaste and a reminder to us of all that is to come when Christ our King returns and makes everything sad untrue. When this earth is turned into heaven and all is redeemed and all glory is yours and your glory covers the world as the waters cover the sea. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.